right, take your Bibles and turn with us to the book of Revelation. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. God gave the revelation of Jesus to John to share it with us. And the revelation that John is sharing with us is all about the revelation of Jesus Christ. is coming again. I just read this past week that, uh, that this is considered to be the greatest book ever written. Now, I told you that I, I didn't like the book of Revelation when I was a kid. I hated a lot of the imagery that was there. I, I didn't like the descriptions of judgment that we found there. But I've since learned that there's more positive in the book of Revelation than there is negative. I never do that. But there is. There's more positive than there is negative. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to turn to the second chapter of Revelation for just a moment. Keep your thumb there. And I want to whet your appetite a little bit because the Bible has a lot of amazing facts. A lot of amazing facts. And I love these Bibles that are written for teens. How many, I, 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 try, I bought practically every one of the Bibles that are out there on the market that are written for teenagers. This one here is the Life Application Bible for guys. Now, there's ones for teens, and there's one for girls, and there's one for guys. And one thing I like about this, this book here is it, it gives us amazing facts. I mean amazing facts. So Bradley was over at the house the other day, yesterday, I guess it was, or the day before yesterday, and we were talking about this. And, and I went to the amazing fact that's in Isaiah chapter 11. And the amazing fact that stands out in Isaiah 11 is, imagine one day the world will be so peaceful that babies will play around poisonous snakes and not get hurt. Some of you probably didn't know that. Well, 11 chapter 6 says, In that day the wolf and the lamb will live together. The leopard will lie down with the baby goat. The calf and the yearling will be safe with the lion. And a little child will lead them. The cow will graze near the bear. The cub and the calf will lie down together. The lion will eat hay like a cow. The baby will play safely near the hole of a cobra. Yes, a little child will put its hand in a nest of deadly snakes without harm. That's an amazing fact. And we don't get to see it until paradise destroyed in the book of Genesis is paradise regained in the book of Revelation. Now, I have one other one. That, I wasn't going to use that one today, but the one I intended to use was in the book of Revelation. So, but I thought that one was really good. Uh, Bradley and I both thought that. So, Revelation chapter 21, you don't have to turn there. You're in chapter 2. You can just stay right there for a moment. But I want you to see or hear this amazing fact in Revelation chapter 21. Did you know that the most awesome city in the universe, and it's not Pittsburgh, It's not New York, Paris, it's not Tokyo. Did you know that the most awesome city in the universe will come down to earth right out of heaven someday? And that, that just seems so fantastic that they wrote under that, check it out. Revelation 21 
And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, or pain. All of these things are gone forever. And, you know, a lot of people, we look at that and we say, I can't figure out how that's going to happen. Well, you didn't go to be an you didn't go to be an architect, I guess. No, I'm teasing you on that. God has the plans; He knows how it's going to work. But He's bringing the holy city, Jerusalem, the most important piece of real estate in the universe. He's bringing it to this earth and somehow combining the new heaven and the new earth together. How many times have I said that? Because we need to constantly remind ourselves. That the best is yet to come, regardless of what we see around us. I didn't know what to expect when I was on vacation. But I can tell you, categorically, Don and I saw no perversion. God gave us a wonderful vacation. And it's important for us, it's important for us to remember that even though we go through dark times, there is light at the end of the tunnel, amen? And that's why it's important for us to know God's word. All right? All right. Now, let's go to chapter 1, verse 9. You're on Revelation chapter 2. I, I want you to look at a couple of things that we're going to share here as we conclude uh, part 2 of the revelation of Jesus Christ. And just constantly keep in mind, the revelation of Jesus Christ is the personal return of Christ to this earth. I think the best outline, the quickest, littlest outline for the book is in chapter 1, verse 19, where God says to Jesus, says to John, write these things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this, past, present, and future. There's your outline. And all we have to do now is try to figure out what was past, what had he already seen, what are the things that are, and what are the things which will take place after this? We'd already seen the vision of Christ. He is now given information regarding seven churches in Asia, right on the coast of where he was on the Isle of Patmos. Churches, no doubt, that he probably had assisted and had instructed and had pastored, perhaps. But these seven churches are representative of churches in that day and in this day because the things which will take place after this has not yet been given to us. This is an illustration of what the church is going to look like throughout history. And you may stack them one upon the other. I don't care what you do. They represent the church of today. And I just, uh, I, I, we cannot look at all of it, but I want you to see the pattern here of these seven churches. You have, for instance, in chapter 2, verse 1, the angel writing to the church of Ephesus and saying, 
that he who holds the seven stars in his right. When Jesus opens up these examples of the churches, he generally goes back to an image of, the, of what he shared with us in chapter 1, generally speaking. And here's what he always does when he addresses one of these seven churches. Number one, he always says, I know your works. I know what your church is doing. I know if they're faithfully serving me. I know if they've gotten off the beaten track. I know your works. And I feel bad for the church that's represented by the, the church at Ephesus today because the Bible says, you know, your labor's good. You've got a lot of things going for you. Nevertheless, you have a problem because you have left your first love in verse 4. You need to get back on track. And I think, you know what? There are a lot of churches out there where, you know, you go to church and you sit there and you're about as bored stiff as you can be. And you say, when are they going to stop singing? When is he going to stop preaching? Well, I, could, I could be doing something far more exciting than this today. Well, if we've lost our first love, then we're not excited about singing about Jesus. We're not excited about giving him praise and thanksgiving. That's why we're here. We're here not to impose upon you some moral standard that God is going to strike you dead if you don't obey. There was a Scottish preacher who said, Chalmers, who said, you know, every time I got up in the pulpit and all I ever did was preach the law, do this, do that, do this, he said, I emptied my church. But boy, when I began to preach the gospel and we put Jesus at the heart of our worship, that makes all the difference in the world. I was almost to tears on a couple of these songs when I thought about what Lord, Lord Jesus has done for me. And I, it doesn't see, I don't, and I don't want to ever be in the position where I've lost my first love. But anyway, that's what happens. He says, I know your works, I know your works, I know your works. And then there's a second thing that always shows up in every description of every church he gives here. Now, you're on your own a little bit here because we're not going to talk about the loveless church and the persecuted church and the compromising church and the corrupt church. Those are the headings, by the way. Those are the little, little things that help us to see the details that weren't written in the original. Those are the little headings in your Bibles. The dead church, the faithful church, and the lukewarm church. We're not going to discuss all the details there, but God comes back every single time. Jesus comes back every single time and says, if you have a ear to hear... I want you to know that to him who overcomes, to him who overcomes, personalize that. To him who overcomes, in the midst of all of these different situations the church has faced down through the years, he says to the Ephesians, he says, you'll eat from the tree of life. Now, the last time we heard about the tree of life was back in Genesis. Showing up again. Because God not only took the tree of life, but he's going to recreate it or, or he's going to return it to us in the new heaven and the new earth. Because it's going to be in the midst of the paradise of God. Now, <clears throat> skip over all of these churches till you get to the faithful church and the lukewarm church. Okay? 
And we're going to come back to this because it's our application. But let me give you a little bit of information before we get there. I told you that the outline that John gives to us is the one that Jesus gave to him. Write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. The things that are, are the work of the church in every generation, including ours today. And these are examples of what happens to the church and why we need to be careful to be faithful to him. But now, how about the things that come afterwards? Go to chapter 4 of Revelation, verse 1. Now, the details I'm going to give you now aren't going to take a lot of time to do, but I want you to have them. I want you to know where they are. So here's John saying, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up hither, and I will show you things which must take to place after this. And immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And now we got two great chapters that describe a heavenly scene that has a lot of imagery in it, but one that can be pretty exciting if you spend some time thinking about it. Now I say this to you because I'm, I'm a premillennialist, but I respect all the positions that are out there. I expect the respect the amillennialist and I respect the postmillennialist. And these are just three ideas about the thousand year reign of Christ that God describes at the end of the book of Revelation. A premillennialist believes that's going to literally happen. Jesus is coming back to this earth and he's going to set up his physical reign. An amillennialist believes that no, there's not going to be any literal kingdom. It is Jesus reigning in heaven right now through the church. And a post-millennialist says, well, when God, brings, when God makes the church so effective that the world has changed, they will usher in the, the, the millennial thousand-year reign of Christ, and then Jesus will return after that. Those are the three positions that you have. But within premillennialism, you also have three positions on what we call the rapture of the church. There was a time when I was so intimidated by this, I would never even talk about it. But, you know, I'm back to talking about it. I'm back to talking about it. Because in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, this is the first reference that most theologians refer to when they refer to the rapture of the church, the catching up of the church, the taking up of the church. That part of the second return of Christ where they, Jesus is out there and he says to the disciples, he goes up into heaven in a cloud and, and, uh, and the Bible says that the angel said he's going to come back the same way. John chapter 14 says, let not your heart be troubled. I go away and if I go away, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there ye may be also. Most theologians will look at that and say that definitely refers to the second coming of Christ. But here, here's a reference that's almost very hard to dismiss because God says through John 
I, the, I, the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking and saying, "Come up here, and I will show you the things which must take to place after the, take place after this." Now, in chapters four and five, we have a heavenly scene, and then what happens in chapter six? We have, according to what I feel is the best description of these events in Revelation, we have the tribulation period. We have the tri tribulation period. It starts in chapter 6, verse 1. Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him, and he went out to conquer and to conquer. And that's your first seal. And then you have seven seals. Now John is in heaven. John has been invited to come and see, look and see what's going to happen. And we have the first seven seals of the tribulation period. The seventh seal of the tribulation period opens up seven trumpets. You see that in chapter 8? And when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. And so you have the seven trumpets. And then once the seven trumpets are given to us in chapters 8 and 9 and 10, uh, 11, and some peripheral information there, you have the seventh trumpet sounding, and then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. If you are a premillennialist and you think that the, the rapture of the church isn't going to happen at the beginning, before the tribulation period, you believe then perhaps it's going to happen in the middle of the tribulation period when things get really bad. And I just want you to put this down. Chapter 11, verse 15 would be the place where the tribulation would occur for you three and a half years in to the tribulation period. Now, we can get into details, and we don't have to do that. But, you know, if you match, if you match this passage with 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4, those great passages of Scripture that describe the second coming of Christ... You'll see why people say, well, that's the last trumpet here. And the Bible says the last trumpet in those two passages. Now, there is a trumpet-like reference, but I can't get over the fact that John is in heaven. And I can't get over the fact that he stops talking, God stops talking about the church in chapter 3 and doesn't bring it up again till the end of the book. All right, there are other things too, but I'm just telling you, this can be a complicated book, but I'm just giving you a couple landmark places for you to look at, or look at. Now, I want you to go back to the two, told you this wouldn't take too long. So you have the, the, you have the tribulation period described all the way to the 19th chapter of Revelation. You have the second coming of Christ, you have the thousand year reign of Christ, and then you have judgment and the new heaven and the new earth. All right, that's basically it. Now, I want you to go back to Revelation chapter 2. 
or three actually, and I want to look at the last two. I just want to give you a couple of quick applications on the last two churches because they represent churches that have existed from this day all the way back to the time of the New Testament. You have, for instance, churches that would be considered to be faithful churches in every respect. God knows their works. God knows our works. I would hope that our church would always fall into the category of being the faithful church. That's my prayer. That's my concern in verse 8. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it, for you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. I hope that's always the case for us. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan so who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I, that, that I have loved you. Uh, we can't discuss that this morning, but here's one reason why I want to always be part of the faithful church. In verse 10, the Bible says, Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also, everybody together, if you've got a New King James Version, let's read this together. I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Well, that's the blessing for the faithful church. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one takes your crown. And then the pattern is he who overcomes. Guess what? We get to enjoy the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God. Verse 12. All right. There you have it. I don't know. That's pretty exciting to me. It's all going to happen. It's not fairy tale. It's not just some, some thoughts, some granulous, grand, grand thoughts to help you and I just imagine from a metaphorical position how things will be. That's literally going to happen. Amen? Now, the lukewarm church, on the other hand, God has nothing bad to say about the faithful church, but here's the lukewarm church, and a lot of people have taken these churches and said, it's interesting, God has stacked up all these churches the way church history has worked out. Church, church began with a loveless, the problems began with a loveless church, persecuted church, compromising church, corrupt church, a dead church, a faithful church, and now in this day and age, we have to face the problem of the lukewarm church. For I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot, verse 15. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich. I have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you're looking at it from a purely physical perspective. You do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And that does represent some of the so-called church today. If not a lot of it. Now, I want to close. I want to close with a couple of interesting thoughts here. 
we really need to, you know, one thing we need to do as a church is we need to share God's word, and we need to keep sharing God's word, and we need to keep sharing God's word, and we need to be talking about God, and talking about Christ, and talking about salvation. We need to do it whenever we have the opportunity to do it. What I find very interesting here is one of the unique examples that we have in scripture of being able to do that is just when you walk up to someone, use common ground that God has given you between you and the other person when you share the gospel. If you're a farmer and you walk up to a farmer, use, all, use what the scriptures talk about reaping and sowing because he understands exactly what you're talking about. See what I'm saying? And you say, well, but I'm sure. No, every, all of us have things in common. We all eat. There are plenty of spiritual lessons in that. We all clothe ourselves. We all go to work. We all do. And the Bible is filled with spiritual lessons that refer to everyday things that we do. And you'll say, Pastor, you've kind of lost your way on the sermon, haven't you? No, I want you to see something here in the lukewarm church when Jesus addresses this lukewarm church. What does he say to them in verse 18? He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. He's not talking about real gold, is he? But he's talking about the biggest industry, one of the biggest industries in Laodicea the banking industry, in one of the most gorgeous cities, in one of the most luxurious, uh, luxury areas in all of Asia, he is talking about the banking industry to say, listen, you need to buy refined gold from me, that you may be rich spiritually. And you need to buy white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. He's not referring to literal clothes. He's referring to the second biggest industry in Laodicea, the clothing industry, which made fine wool, by the way, fine black wool, by the way, the best in the world. The best in the world. And then he says, finally, in verse 3, in, in the same verse, he says, not only that, but you need to anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. He's not talking about getting eye salve down at the local drugstore. He's talking about spiritual eye salve. But in doing that, he is using the third biggest industry in Laodicea that we know of. The industry of producing medication and medicines. And he's using the spiritual counterparts. If I had to, you know, and that just, I've never seen that before. I, you know, I have been reading the, the book of Revelation, and I only discovered this a couple of weeks ago. And I thought about it, and I thought, wow, because I'm really concerned. I'm really concerned about all of us sharing God's word and sharing it and sharing it and sharing it. And listen, I want to think about this for a second. Um, we have all kinds of questions and concerns as to why we don't share, see, uh, I remember somebody coming up to, to D, I think it was D.L. Moody, and uh, he, had, he, had, he had gone, preached a long time apparently, and he didn't end with an invitation at, at the end of his service. And someone come up to D.L. Moody and says, you know what, D.L. Moody, I was ready to get saved last night at your, at your meeting, but because you didn't give an invitation, I didn't get saved. 
And D.L. Moody says, well, here we are today. Get saved today. Oh, he says, no, I was ready last night, but I'm not ready today. And D.L. Moody said, if you weren't ready last night, you aren't ready today. If you were ready, if you, if you are not ready today, you weren't ready last night. I don't know about you, but that, that dispels a lot of concern and fear that the average person has on doing it right. Someone once said, I think this was D.L. Moody too. When I was a kid, he was one of my favorites. D.L. Moody. I loved Charles Spurgeon. I loved a lot of these. Uh, but but D.L. Moody was my favorite. And um, evangelist. He was very world famous in the 1800s, if you didn't know who he was. But somebody came up to D.L. Moody one time and says, you know what? You know what? I don't like the way you share the gospel with people. And it wasn't because D.L. Moody wasn't sharing the fact that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. It wasn't any of that. I don't like the methods you use to share the gospel. And D.L. Moody looked at him and says, well, well, how do you do it? And the guy says, why? Well, I, I don't. And D.L. Moody says, well, I like my way better then. You see, we need, after I read the book of Revelation, I say, I'm getting older now, and so I say, Gary, how much time do you have left? And I say, boy, I got a lot of stuff to squeeze into a shorter period of time now that I'm in my 70s, you know what I mean? And so I, I, I say that, but when I get to the book of Revelation, I feel the same way about that. You look at the book of Revelation, you say, we got to really get God's word out there. We need to talk about it as often as we can, share it as often as we can. Listen, in, in one sense, if you share God's word, God is going to open up the hearts. And it's important. So here's your practical application day. It's very simple. We have, uh, we have these New Testaments and Psalms and Proverbs. And we want you to take one if you, if you, if you can today and plan on giving it to somebody. We have lots of others. So if we run out of them over there, that's okay. We'll, we'll, we'll keep them out there and put them out there for the next few weeks or so um, until we need to get a new batch. But... But look at the book. Look at all of the things in the book that show you how helpful the Bible is. So that when you talk to some, so that when you plan to give this to somebody, you'll be able to share something that you can have common ground with, okay? So take a good look at this, all right? And take one with you if you have someone that you want to share. If you don't want to take one today, it's okay. If you want to pray about it and uh, come back and get one next week or so, that's okay too, all right? But my point is that we need to be sharing God's word like never before. Amen? And it's going to take all of us. All of us. Not just the preachers in the pulpit. Not just the teachers in seminary. Not just uh, evangelists at all. It's going to take all of us winning people one by one. Amen? All right, that's it. That's it for today, and uh, let's go ahead and pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to see how important it is for us to share it as often as we can. Give us the courage to do that. Help us to see that common ground really does make a difference and makes a point, no doubt.
as we see in the illustration of the Laodicean church. In your precious name, Lord, we pray. Amen.